comes to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, and if you're brand new to us this morning, you can wide away make a about this, because we've been in this chapter um, for a number of months now. Hebrews chapter 12, and we've been really just focusing around verse 1. Last week we began to look at verse 2. So let's read this again this morning, Hebrews 12, verse 1 to 3. It says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up. And let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding his shame. Now he is seated in the place of honor beside God's throne. Think of all the hostility he endured from sinful people. And then you won't give up and you won't become weary. We've looked at various different aspects of this throughout the last few months. And all those messages as always are available online. But last week we began to look at verse 2. And we looked at this comment of the statement that the writer of Hebrews says when he says, keep your eyes on Jesus. The best way that you can run this race, the most effective way to run this race, which of course is a race of faith, is by keeping your eyes on Jesus. Other translations say, fix your gaze on Jesus, looking onto Jesus. And last week we began to answer the question, why? Why should we look to Jesus? And verse 3 gave us our first answer that the writer of Hebrews says, when we look to Jesus, we won't become weary and we won't give up. Because you see, it's only when we look to Jesus, as we said last week, that we have what we need to run the race correctly. Remember last week we said that when we look at ourselves, all we end up doing is this performance type mentality. And all that ever leads to is, am I good enough? Am I in? Am I out? It would only ever lead to pride or condemnation, depending on where you are on that spectrum. When we look at the devil, sometimes I talk to Christians and they're actually more besotted with the enemy than they are with the victory of Jesus. When we look at the enemy, so often we can get distracted, we can be in this place of fear. Now don't get me wrong, the Bible says we should be aware of these strategies, we should understand that we are in a spiritual battle. But listen, we're a people of victory, amen? We are victorious. And how do we remind ourselves that we're victorious? Not by looking at the enemy, but by keeping our eyes on Jesus. We don't look at the enemy, we don't look at, we don't look at circumstance. So often we get distracted by the things of this world. What's going on? Do you know, again, that can lead us to a place where we're just despondent, where we're just weary. But the writer of Hebrews says we're to focus our eyes on Jesus. Let me pose this question again to you this morning. As you are running the race of faith, where are your eyes fixed? What has your attention right now in this season of your life? What has your primary focus in this moment? Because the writer of Hebrews makes it clear we're to keep our eyes on Jesus. And so over these um, few weeks, last week and over the next few weeks, we're doing that. We're, we're focusing in on Jesus, the King of Kings, and looking at who he is. Last week we looked at the fact that Jesus said he is the way, the truth, and the life. And that message again is available for you to catch up on if you weren't around. But I want to continue and build on that today and continuing that vein of thinking next week we're going to talk about um, Jesus the healer and so today the next week we're going to look at the subject that so often people try to avoid we're going to talk about Jesus the healer today I want to continue in this thought and focus on the truth that when Jesus died 
a number of things took place. And it opened up a number of opportunities, blessings, and life-changing realities for us. But not only affected how we started the race and how we were allowed to start the race, but should still today affect the way that we run our everyday race. Now, if you were to look at what happened when Jesus died, that would be a huge Bible study in itself. Um, I'd encourage you to look into some of these things in your own time, get some friends out, your connect group leader about it. But when you begin to look at the cross, you see you know, justification, sanctification, salvation, all these long words that we can be put off by, but actually there's so much within them, and I'd encourage you to study that at some point. But there's one particular aspect that I want to focus in on today, and that is this powerful truth that Jesus is our Redeemer. Jesus is our Redeemer. And as we run this race of faith, we are to look to Jesus, who amongst many other things the Bible says is our Redeemer. Now, I'm not sure what comes to mind when you hear that word redemption. It's not a word that we use that often uh, nowadays, I've been sometimes on mortgages. It's an old type-fashioned word that we don't really use. But this is what it actually means. And I want us to, for some of you, maybe describe this for the very first time, for many of us in this room, I want us to refresh our thinking about what redemption is and what difference it makes or should make to our everyday reality of faith. Now, one of the definitions of redemption is this. It's going to come up on the screen, hopefully. It says it's to recover ownership of something by paying a specified sum. It's a buying back of something that was lost. So for me, the very first time that I encountered this and understood the power of redemption actually had nothing to do with church. I wasn't in a Bible study. I wasn't in a church service. It had nothing to do with God. It had everything to do with the Nokia 3210. How many people know this? this? Oh, it's beautiful, isn't it? How many people remember owning a Nokia 3210? I mean, this was it. If you're from Ignition this morning, you know nothing beyond an iPhone. This is what it was all about. I mean, this was the moment in 1999 when I got uh, a Nokia 3210, and it was one of the first phones that you could actually fit in your pocket without it being a brick or an aerial, or some of you remember having a mobile, very few people had it, when it was a briefcase attached to a phone. I bet Tony Russell had one of those. Um, and, and you carried them around. Did you, Tony? Yes. I knew it. <laughs> I knew it. And so... You carried these around, and Tony carried one of these around, and you had this, but then suddenly this came along, and it could fit in your pocket. It had a green backlight. Ooh. It had three names. Not that actually anyone could remember any of them other than Snake. Right? That, that's a quiz question. What are the other two games on the Nokia 3210 other than Snake? Tennis. No. Anyway, we're getting sidetracked. Um, snake, which would get you caught up. And, and so I had a Nokia 3210. At the time, I worked at a charity um, called Second Chance. And this was the reality of working for this charity that worked with uh, young people who had a lot of behavioural issues, a lot of stuff going on in their life, a lot of drugs involved. If you owned an item, in fact, if there was an item in the office that wasn't nailed down to the floor or glued down to the floor, then it was up for being stolen, right? You remember this, Aki. Aki was a trusty at the time. And, and actually, even the carpets probably weren't even safe if you could just rip them up. And so, sure enough, one day I had this phone, I left it on the side, and it was stolen. And to cut a long story short, by the end of the evening, this shows you what Paul Portsmouth comes up, it had exchanged hands four times. I mean, now we're just going to dust it, but by the end of that time, it was exchanged hands four times. I finally managed to get hold of this person who now had my phone. 
I said, look, I'm, there's been a misunderstanding, it's been started. I said, yeah, of course you can have it back, man. 20 pound. He's like, hang on, this is my phone. This is mine. No, I own this phone. But because of the mix-up and all that kind of stuff, because there's no point getting the police involved at that point because they're not going to care about one mobile phone, because we were in a time where you couldn't just transfer, there was no cloud, the cloud was not invented, so we were in a moment where everything was on here, all my uh, numbers, all that kind of stuff. And so I went and I got this phone back for £20. The reality was this, he had no legal right over it, yet he had possession of it. Now rewind from the late 1990s to the very beginning of time in Genesis chapter 1. And the story of redemption begins. We know that God made mankind in his own image for a crowning moment of his creation. And mankind was made to be in relationship with the one who made them, to rule and reign on this earth. But you know the story, Genesis chapter 3, the enemy attempts and, and cons and deceives Adam and Eve into following another wisdom, another lordship. And in that moment, as they did, the Bible makes it clear that a spiritual death took place that day. But they died. Now, if you're new to the Bible, you may say, well, hang on, I read Genesis 4, 5, 2. People were still living. People were still walking around. Yeah, they were alive physically, but they were dead to God spiritually. And here's the problem. Two dead people can't give life to a living person. And so Adam and Eve produced this whole generation of people that were alive physically, they were walking, they were talking, but they were dead to God spiritually. But God had a plan. God had a plan of redemption. Now here's the thing we need to understand about God. God is a God of love, but God is also a God of justice. And so God couldn't violate who he was. He couldn't just go, oh, don't worry about it. Oh, we'll, we'll just scrap my whole, then let's just start all over it. Forget it. He had to be right to who he was. And so this plan was legal. It wouldn't violate any of the justice of God, but it was a plan that would cost him the life of his one and only son. That plan had a name. His name was Jesus. And so we know the account, many of us know him. This is why we worship Jesus with passion. This is why I preach the gospel with passion. Because the reality was, outside of Jesus, there was no way, as we said last week, that we could ever be made right with God again. You read the Old Testament, very excited about this morning. You read the Old Testament, and all you see is animal sacrifice after animal sacrifice. We've looked at it before, about the blood of bulls and the whole sacrificial system. It would only ever temporarily cover up the sins of mankind. It would only ever kind of half do away with the, the problem. But Jesus came as our Redeemer, and his blood was the payment for our redemption. But when he died and he was buried and he rose again, We've got to understand that that whole thing meant that we were brought back to the one who rightfully owned us. We were purchased with the blood of Jesus and brought back to our rightful owner, God. Hebrews verse 9, verse 12, speaking of Jesus, says, With his own blood, not the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once for all time, and he secured what? He secured our redemption forever. And all we need to do to receive that, as many of us have done at one point or another in our life, is to step into that by believing on Jesus and what he's done for us. And when we did that, whether that was five months ago, whether it was 50 years ago, we know that there was a nature that changed within us. All of a sudden, you could forgive people you couldn't forgive before. All of a sudden, you loved as you've never loved before. You were set free from stuff that had chains upon you for so long. You were a different person the day that you really received 
the forgiveness of life over Jesus and a new life. But here's the problem. It's so simple. And so many people believe it, but it's almost too good to be true, whether they verbalize it, whether it's just subconsciously. And so what many people do as they run this race is they try to add to what Jesus has already done for us. We make our race of faith about what we can do and not what Jesus has already done. And here's why I want to talk about this this morning. Because as I pastor people, I see that there are many people who are fed up of only seeing temporary victory in their life because they're doing it based on their own ability. They see temporary breakthrough. They see temporary victory until they're right back to square one where they began. There are people who hear me preach or hear others speak or sing about the fact that we are free, we're free indeed, and yet they don't feel free, they feel trapped. There are people who know they should be living in victory and yet are, are driven by their emotions on any given day. And so we've got to understand that when we run this race, outside of seeing Jesus as our Redeemer, it will be a race that's frustrating, it will be a race that's full of condemnation, it will be a race where we don't seem to be making any forward movement. So I want to speak into this today. Turn your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3, where we're going to camp for the rest of our time in the world this morning. Philippians chapter 3. And in Philippians 3 we find a great passage written by the Apostle Paul that I pray will highlight the points we are making this morning. It says this, starting in verse 1. Whatever happens, my dear brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. That's the whole message in itself. Whatever's going on in your life right now, rejoice in the Lord. I believe that's a, a word right now for some of you. No matter what is going on in your life, make the decision. The joy of the Lord is my strength. I never get tired of telling you these things. And I do it to safeguard your faith. Watch out for those dogs, those people who do evil, those mutilators who say you must be circumcised to be saved. For we who worship by the Spirit of God are the ones who are truly circumcised. We rely on what Jesus has done for us. We put no confidence in human effort, though if we could, um, if anyone could, it would be me. Indeed, if others have reason for confidence in their own efforts, I have even more. I was circumcised when I was eight days old. I am a pure-blooded citizen of Israel and a member of the tribe of Benjamin. A real Hebrew, if ever there was one. I was a member of the Pharisees who demand the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church. And as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Jesus has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage, so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. I no longer count on my own righteousness for obeying the law. Rather, I become righteous through faith in Christ. For God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith. So here's Paul. And if you don't know the story of the Apostle Paul, he went from being really a religious terrorist, which we're about terrorism today, that was the equivalent of who he was in that moment, to being a, a radical disciple and follower of Jesus and a spokesman for the gospel for one defining moment in his life. You can read about it in Acts chapter 9. And in this writing that we're reading today, we're reminded of what the message of redemption is all about. Or rather, what it's not all about. But our redemption isn't found in what we do. Our redemption is found in what Jesus has done 
for us. Amen? So, so let's look at that this morning. Let's just take a moment to look at these verses. Here's Paul writing to the church in Philippi. Verse 1, he says, I want to safeguard your faith. In other words, this is important. Listen up. This is, this is vital to your journey. Verse 2. Watch out for those dogs, those people who do evil, those mutilators who say you must be circumcised to be saved. So Paul's writing this letter to the church in Philippi. Let me just set some context in this moment. In this section of the letter, he begins to launch this attack upon this group of Jewish men. And what was happening was this church was brand new, it was growing, it was, had life to it, and Paul, who had converted to, uh, to Jesus and faith in Jesus from religious legalism, he was in this moment when he was preaching Jesus, reading the book of Acts, Jesus, 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 to Jews, to Gentiles, there's thousands of Gentiles that are converting to faith in Jesus Christ. Yet here's a reality, the Jews don't like it. Because they're seeing what's going on, they believe it's a sect, all this kind of stuff. And so these Jewish men would come alongside these new converts, and they would say, yeah, but if you really want to be accepted by God, if you really want to be considered a true child of God, then you're going to have to add to what they say Jesus has done for you. And they tried to superimpose all these laws on these Gentiles. They said, if you want to be true, then you're going to have to follow all the Jewish dietary requirements. You're going to have to wash your hands according to kosher law. You're going to have to only eat certain foods. You're going to have to keep the Sabbath laws, all the hundreds of Sabbath laws. And here's the big one. Since you're not Jewish, and so you weren't circumcised when you were eight days old, we're going to have to do the circumcision right now. Now, if you don't know what circumcision is, ask the person next to you, and they'll explain it, or Google it. Actually, don't Google it. Uh, let, let's just say it's just not on most people's bucket list in this moment myself out of a hole. Uh, and so in this moment, they're saying you've got to add to what Jesus has done. You've got to be circumcised because you've got to add to what Jesus has done. You've got to follow the 600 plus man-made rules and regulations that came from 10 commandments that God had given to Moses. Man, God gives man 10 things and man produces 600 plus things from that in this moment. Now the truth is this, but it's not, not only the, the church in Philippi that needs to hear this, it's us as well. Because there is teaching out there today, or there are things that we place upon ourselves today, where we sometimes fall into the trap of thinking that we have to add to what Jesus has already done for us. So often we fall into religious legalism, how much we're doing, whether it's enough whether we're actually accepted. Instead of following the true message of Jesus is our redeemer. See, religion boasts of man's performance. But the message of redemption is all about the perfect, finished work of Jesus Christ upon the cross. That's why Hebrews 10 says that Jesus, through one sacrifice, made perfect those who are being made holy. I'm so I don't know about you, I'm so thankful that the message of redemption has nothing to do with me. Because when I came to the cross, I was broken. There was nothing that I could offer. But God said, I don't need you to offer anything. I need you to believe in what I have done for you. The message of redemption is found in what Jesus has done for us. And it's important because there are people here today who are frustrated. And I want you to know as a pastor that you will never find true joy and true peace. You will never be content. You will never move beyond the starting blocks 
all the time that you are making it about yourself. You will only frustrate yourself more and more. See, in the next verse, Paul writes this, we put no confidence in human effort. So unlike what we looked at last week, when we looked at all the other faiths, all the other religions that make it about what can man do to find their way to God, Paul says we put no confidence in human effort. And then he goes on, he says, well, actually, if we did, then I'm the one around here who could brag about this. He says, you want to play this game? You want to go down that route? I am the one who would come out top trumps. Verse 4, if others have reason for confidence in their own efforts, I have even more. Now listen to what comes next. Let me just highlight what he's doing. He lists seven things in this next moment. Four things that were attributed to him at birth. In other words, they just happened because he was born into them. Three things that he achieved, that he accomplished. Now why is that important? Because remember who he's writing to and who he's making a point about. The number seven in the Jewish faith is a number of completion and perfection. So Paul knows exactly what he's doing in this moment. He's making a point. Even in the amount of things I've done, it's perfect. Anything that's man-made that I've achieved, it would be perfect. Listen to some of these. I was circumcised when I was eight days old. Every Jewish boy was circumcised on the eighth day. Tick. He passes that first test. I'm a pure-blooded citizen of Israel. In other words, he's not a new convert into Judaism. He was born into this religion. I'm a member of the tribe of Benjamin. So it's a step further because the Benjamites were a very important tribe. The, the Benjamites, the city of Jerusalem, was found within the borders of a Benjamite tribe. The Benjamites were the only tribe that stayed loyal to King David when Israel was split into the northern and southern kingdoms. But King Saul, remember the first king of Israel, King Saul, he was, you guessed it, a Benjamite. And so Paul's saying, I didn't just come from the right country, I came from the right family. I came from the right tribe. I know people, I've got contact. I'm the one that this is all about. I'm a real Hebrew if there ever was one, a Hebrew of Hebrews. That means that basically I spoke the language of my forefathers, but he also spoke Aramaic. He didn't have to give any answers to the people who maybe could accuse him. He said, I was a member of the Pharisees. You couldn't get more religiously pious and hypocritical than the Pharisees and religious legalism that they were placed upon others. These were the guys who prayed on street corners in, in order that everyone could hear what they were saying. He says, I was one of them. You want to talk about the Pharisees? I was one of them. He goes on, he says, I was so zealous, but I harshly persecuted the church. In other words, he says, do you know what, what, when Christianity started taking loads and loads of converts away from Judaism, you all moaned about it, and you sat on your hands, and I was the one who went in and persecuted people. I was the one who arrested people. I was the one who had them in prison. I was the one, in many cases, who had them killed. And then he ends with this. And as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. Notice anything in what he's saying. There's a word that keeps coming up. Times like I. 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 I did this. I achieved that. The Bible says in Galatians 2.20, it's no longer I who lives, but Christ who now lives in me. Having listed all of that, Paul goes on and he says, I once thought most things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Jesus has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Jesus. For his sake, I discarded everything else. I counted all this garbage so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. 
I no longer count on my own righteousness for obeying the law. Rather, I become righteous through faith in Jesus. For God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith. Paul understood, but all of that, you could have a list as long as you want, but all of that was pointless. All of that was, was worthless. All of that was garbage. And when these translators use the word rubbish or garbage, we've got to understand that actually it's a nice way of translating the word that Paul really used, but was pretty much an X-rated word in the Greek. It was this word shkubala, and, and basically Paul was making the point, every single thing that I've done, all the time that I ran this race of faith, and it was about me and what I could achieve, it's rubbish, it stinks, it's like a rotting pile of excrement. That's what he's saying in this moment. See, the message of redemption is that no amount of good works could ever make us right with God. Paul had done so much in the name of religion, but it didn't gain him anything. And so Paul says, we don't live right in order to get to God. We live right because God has come to us. Because sometimes when you preach a message like this, people go, oh, well, it doesn't matter what I did. No, no, no. He made perfect, the Bible says. Jesus made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Sanctification. Do you know what? Why do we live right? Not in order to please God or try to get to God. Because the only thing that can please God, the Bible says, is faith. The reason that we live right is because we have an understanding of how much our life has cost God to buy us back. And anything else is behavior modification. Anything else is you trying to be a good person, trying to be a, a good Christian, coming to church on a Sunday morning and saying, right, this week I've got it nailed on. This week I'm going to do exactly what I want to do. And then you wake up Monday morning, somebody irritates you, you respond and everything's out the window. You're right back to where you first began. Stop trying in your own strength because that will only last so long. The writer of Hebrews says, no, 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 no. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Because he is your redemption. Don't take them off him for even a moment. Okay, let's bring this in. And then you can come up. Let's, let's look at some practical applications of this as we head out today. What's our response to all of this? Let me repeat and highlight what I said last week. That our first response is to make Jesus primary to every single thing around our lives. Last week we talked about the truth. But our response is this, that Jesus has got to be central to our gospel. Let's not preach any other gospel outside of Jesus crucified, Jesus resurrected, Jesus given us new life. Jesus has got to be central to our church. We're not this community group, we're the church of Jesus Christ. Jesus has got to be central to our worship. Jesus has got to be central to our race. And the way we run the race effectively is by keeping our eyes on Jesus. See, for many of us in this room, we had experience of that at the moment of salvation. You know that you had nothing to offer him. You came and you said, Jesus, I need you in my life. But you know what? I've lost count of the number of Christians that I've spoken to a little bit further on their race. They're not the new convert that they've been walking with God a while. And the sad conversation so often goes like this. It's a reality that they've lost sight of Jesus in the race that they've been running. A bit like Mary and Joseph who literally lost the Son of God. Imagine that moment. I often think that, what, what do you pray in a moment like that? Okay, let's pray about this. Uh, Heavenly Father, uh, we've lost your Son. I know you gave us responsibility. But you know, the reality of it is that so often we lose sight of Jesus. 
We're running our race. We're getting distracted by this, that, and the other. We're getting distracted by all this stuff that's coming on our life and the bombardment. We get distracted by careers. We get distracted by trying to be good enough and religion. We get distracted by church sometimes. We get distracted by all of these things instead of keeping our eyes on Jesus. How often have we lost our first love? How often have we made it about what we can do? The Bible says when we make it about our works, we lose sight of God's grace. We nullify the death of Jesus. Galatians 2.21 I do not treat the grace of God as meaningless. For if keeping the law could make us right with God, then there was no need for Jesus to die. Let's keep our eyes on Jesus, focused on Him and what He has done. Well, the second response that I wanted to end with to me is this, that as we run our race of faith on a daily basis, we are coming into contact with countless number of people. We are bumping into people every single day in all manner of different arenas and areas of our life. And they need to know about this Jesus who's a redeemer. So often they've heard about religion. So often they've heard about this is the way that you get to God. They've got to know it. And so here's my challenge. As we're running our race of faith, is Jesus front and center of our thinking? Or is he an afterthought on a Sunday morning when we think, let's grab our Bible, we're off to church, come on, let's get in the car. Is he an afterthought that we think of when we think, oh, I need something, so I'm going to go and I'm going to pray, I'm going to pray to Jesus. Or is he front and center of our thinking as we live in every single day of our life? Because when he is, do you know what? We won't have to think, right, I need to rustle up a, a three-point message to, to tell people about who Jesus is. You'll just start talking about Jesus in normal conversation. When Jesus is front and center, when your eyes are fixed on him on a daily basis, do you know what the reality is? But you'll begin to demonstrate who Jesus is by the way that you live, and people will begin to ask you questions. Final verse, Psalm 107, verse 2. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from the hands of the enemy. I love the way the NIV puts it. But let the redeemed of the Lord tell their stories. Here's my challenge to each of us. As we're running this race of faith, are we telling our story of how Jesus has redeemed us back to God? Because we're living in an age, as I said last week, where there's so much confusion about who God is and how you get to him. We're living in an age where every religion will say, you have to do this, you have to do that. We're living in a my truth generation where you can't go against other people's truth or the truth of the gospel. And in the midst of all of that, Jesus stands up and he says, I am the way. I am the truth. And I am the truth. <coughs> and now he's looking for his body to go and tell the story of what he has done for them. Let's just pray as we close the service this morning. Holy Spirit, I pray that what has been communicated this morning would be something that lands in our hearts and grows. Lord, that we would take time to think upon these words, to, to look at these verses once again, Lord. And for anybody who's running their race in their own strength, who's tired, who's weary, Lord, I pray that they would shift their gaze from being on themselves, their circumstances, their problems, the enemy, all the stuff of life, and they would place them firmly on you again, Jesus the author and the finisher of our faith. 
Because Lord, I want to pray for every single person in this room that this coming week, you would give them divine appointments to speak of who you are. Lord, that they don't have to get weird, they don't have to get kooky, they don't have to prepare this speech and they're going to share at work. But Jesus, naturally in conversation, conversations would open up that would allow them to tell others about Jesus. Father, we ask you to send us into the world this coming week as your disciples. You said go into all of the world and preach the gospel. Today, Lord, may we go into our world and be the redeemed who say so. Be the redeemed who tell their story. And Lord, we thank you for all the testimonies that are going to come about as a result of all the life change that's going to happen as a result. Jesus, we fix our eyes on you today. And we thank you for everything you're doing in our lives and in this church community. Amen.